Welcome to the Pilot's Journey Podcast, where we discuss aviation training and the steps involved in maintaining proficiency. Our goal with this podcast is to provide you with additional knowledge and maybe a new spin on topics related to your training. I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, a private pilot in North Dallas. And my name is Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, a certified flight instructor in Fort Worth, Texas. This episode, we'll be discussing pre-flight procedures and how to prepare for a safe, enjoyable flight. Our guest this episode is David Allen, an aviation enthusiast, co-host of a Pilot's Flight Podlog podcast, and occasional student pilot. Welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me. All right. Pre-flight, very important. I like to teach that there's three parts to a pre-flight. Checking pre-flighting the pilot, pre-flighting your flight plan, and pre-flighting the aircraft. I think all three need to be grouped into one one pre-flight uh, every time before you go fly. And uh, I don't think we're going to discuss too much about the pilot part because uh, aeromedical factors and uh, the flight planning portion can just be hours and hours of topics. So I think we're going to just kind of limit it a little bit to uh, the aircraft pre-flight here. But just to kind of uh, touch base with what I'm talking about, about pre-flighting the pilot, hopefully we've all heard of the hazardous attitudes and the I'm safe acronym. The I'm safe acronym pretty much sums up everything that you really need to do to pre-flight yourself before you go flying. And this can be found in the uh, AIM Chapter 811, where it will go into each one of those. And I'm safe stands for illness, medication, stress, alcohol, fatigue, and emotion. And it will touch base about why all these are important. And some of them I'm sure you can guess, like alcohol. But uh, uh, also things that might cause hazardous attitudes. We know what they are, but instead of it being important to recognize the hazardous attitudes, um, for me, I've personally been in situations where um, I may have had a hazardous attitude and I've not really known it. So recognizing the hazardous attitudes, but I would have known if I had recognized the steps what could have caused it. For example, for those of you that may be listening to this podcast that may have a a profession in flying or where you fly a lot and you have a boss that you may be flying for, you can be put under a lot of pressure to do things that may not be safe. And I will uh, personally... um, uh, tell you that I have been in that situation many times to where I have probably gone flying when I should not have. And uh, looking back on it now, I think knowing that, I think I have a little bit more courage now to kind of resist these pressures and putting me into uh, uh, situations that's not safe. But uh, I'll open up the floor to you guys if you've had any experience with any of these uh, pre-flighting yourself or for any kind of flying. Actually, I have my question to you is have you ever canceled a flight or, more importantly, canceled a lesson with a student because you self-evaluated and decided that you did not meet I am safe? You know, there has been one for fatigue I have, but it was very obvious I was fatigued. Um, I had a 23-hour day one day where I got to school at 7 in the morning and I was supposed to leave at 5 p.m. But then an instructor canceled, so I had to pick up his students, so I flew till 7 p.m. Well, then when I landed at 7 p.m., two students got stranded in San Antonio, Texas, in being in Fort Worth, Texas. It's, a, it's about a four-hour flight there in a Cessna 172. So being the only person there at 7 o'clock at night, I had to 
fly down there and, and rescue them <laughs> and then fly back. And, then, you know, by the, by the time this is all ended, uh, it was about 3 in the morning. And then the next day I had to get up at 5 a.m. to take my wife to DFW Airport because she was leaving on a business trip. So I definitely canceled the entire next day. Um, but that was a very obvious reason. Um, uh, other than that, no, I, I haven't. And uh, looking back on at least three flights, I definitely should have because of that. I have canceled some flights before, but I've never really canceled the student because there's always something else we could be doing, such as ground or, you know, practicing pre-flighting an airplane. There's there's things that you can do. I can think of times when I should have, and that's what scares me. I'm, I'm more wiser now, and I think now if those situations came up, I definitely would. So, or at least I'd like to hope I, I would. What's the word? It says uh, good judgment comes from experience, and unfortunately experience usually comes from bad judgment. So, yeah, you may, <laughs> you learn things about yourself as you, uh, as you grow as a pilot, I'm sure. I, I tell you what, the best way to learn is from your own mistakes. So I can definitely say I'm a better pilot now from all the mistakes I've made, <laughs> which have been quite, quite many. <laughs> I guess I'm pretty lucky. During my initial primary training, my instructor canceled a couple of times for illness or fatigue, and it kind of taught me then the importance, uh, particularly as I got later in flying and I was doing solos and, and felt competent to, to really carry out the flight without his uh, assistance, he was still said, no, I'm not going to fly and you, you don't need a solo lesson today. And uh, I felt that was pretty uh, important lesson to learn there that, you know, you really do need to self-evaluate and there are times when you're just not up to it. Yeah, I always thought I was really good at self-evaluating myself until you get a boss <laughs> and then he starts doing it for you and then, you know, you realize, hey, it's hard to stand up for that. You know, you are the PIC and as instructor, you're the final authority on, on that aircraft, uh, whether the student is commercially rated or not, you know, and... uh the I'm safe uh, acronym too. The medication is an important one. And I'm not going to get too far into this, but what you need to know for the medication is that there are very common over-the-counter drugs that can really affect your flying, and that actually legally you cannot fly by taking them. AOPA has a, a good list of those online as well. Uh, I've used it several times when I've either been prescribed something or looking for a, an antihistamine or a decongestant or something. You can go there and find out which ones are prohibitive and which ones aren't. And chances are they are all prohibited. <laughs> there are a few that aren't, but not many. Yeah, that's true. I have a very um, well-organized uh, cabinet of medication and... Uh, I think it's split in half where there's like two bottles on the left and, you know, 50 bottles on the right of different things I can take. And the two on the right are the ones I can take and fly. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about flight planning. Obviously, weather. Uh, I have students come up to me all the time, and one of my responsibilities as as a flight instructor was to dis, uh, dispatch solo students on their flights. And they would always come up to me with their weather, you know, a printed off me tar and a TAF. And that would be it. And not having, you know, checking notums or pyreps. Pyreps can tell a completely different story than the, than the METAR. Or the METAR is about to expire. And it's just, again, effort here will save you a lot of heartache. Another thing that I see a lot of students who uh, I hope students that are listening to this podcast won't do, but they never look in their airport facility directory, ever. 
And so much important information is found in those those little green books that you need for your flight planning, um, runway distances, you know, what if you, uh, okay, all of a sudden something happens in the air and you have to go to your alternate airport. Okay, well, the alternate airport you picked doesn't have, let's say, airframe repair or it doesn't have the fuel you need to get out of the airport and now you're stuck. All of this could be uh, fixed if you just open your AFD. Dave, you've had the opportunity to be either a passenger or a student pilot in a variety of different aircraft. Have you seen any of these things that you know as part of the pre-flight process, or have you been more of a, a passenger? In terms of planning the flight, I haven't done a whole lot. I've done a lot of traveling. The company I work for has a Piper Navajo, and we do fly that occasionally to to various locations for sales and training and um, presentations and uh, just kind of being with the customers when we need to. So when whenever we're flying in and out of places, I, I typically, you know, glance over the shoulder of the guy who's doing the flight planning, and he is he does have his head into the into the, the TAFs, and he's checking out what, what the weather's going to be doing and stuff like that. I, I do not have a lot of especially... Uh, VFR flight planning experience. I've played around with IFR flight planning experience, believe it or not, but that has all been on VATSIM, Virtual Air Traffic Simulation Network, and it's strange that I feel like I actually know more about getting an IFR clearance than I do about planning a VFR flight and doing dead reckoning. <laughs> so um, that's, actually, that's actually not all that strange. I think most pilots uh, who have gone into their commercial feel the same way. I personally know a few commercial pilots that if I were to ask, okay, you're in the air, you're VFR, how would you pick up a VFR flight plan now in the air? How would you file it? And they would kind of think the same way that you would IFR, but they they would have a lot of questions and doubts, and they they're just not as comfortable with it still as they are with IFR flight planning. I, I've talked to some people, some some of my friends that have gone through um, their their VFR their their private I should say private pilot check ride recently, and they're telling me the steps that they have to go through with the examiner. Yes, and part part of the part of this check ride is. They have to plan a cross-country flight. And the first leg of this cross-country flight is check the what they think the winds are going to be versus how long it takes them to get to a particular checkpoint. And they have to be there plus or minus five minutes. And I'm like, I have never sat down <laughs> with that kind of detail and said, by the time I reach this bridge, it should be this time based on when I got, went wheels up. So flight planning, especially for VFR, I mean, it's a lot more complex than I have any familiarity with. For a private student, flight planning is about the number one thing I see most students struggle with. And so we're going to have to have a, a, a podcast about flight planning soon, too. Let's talk about doing the actual aircraft pre-flight now, getting to the meat of it. I had an incident the other day where I went out to do a pre-flight for my airplane, and uh, I'd just flown the airplane. I just landed in it, went and got my next student, and we were walking back out to it. And I could have sworn that the tail of the airplane was white when I was walking into the FBO. And as I'm walking back out, it's now black. And as I get closer, I realize that the entire 
uh, empennage of the aircraft is covered in bees. And uh, it's, I, would, I use the term dripping uh, because <laughs> the whole tail was just dripping with bees. And it happened maybe in about 15 minutes time. I have no idea where they came from, but uh, we actually canceled the flight <laughs> because there were so many bees on the airplane. There were so many, in fact, that the weight of all the bees on the tail of the airplane uh, had pushed down the uh, the tail a little bit to where the um, the nose was angled up just slightly. But I knew something was immediately wrong with the airplane um, just as I began my pre-flight walking out to it. I don't know. Have you guys ever experienced something like that? Bees? No. <laughs> <laughs> I have been uh, flying before and encountered a wasp in the cockpit. Oh, but uh, I, it, it was a little trying there at first, but opening the window could pretty much sucked them right out. So <laughs> I had one where I had to pin them down between the windshield and the dashboard. The little sucker didn't want to stay put. <laughs> we had another one, another pre-flight where um, walking out again. You want to start your pre-flight uh, by looking at the aircraft as you're walking up to it. This was a. Uh, an instructor who had told me this, but he said he was walking out to the airplane with his student, and he noticed that uh, the dihedral of the left wing was a lot lower than the dihedral of the right wing. So as he approached and got closer, he noticed that there was a huge cut down the leading edge of the wing at the wing root um, about halfway down, and it was real just it was really just kind of hanging on uh just barely on the wing root and the wing strut was really keeping it up in place from falling off and then on further inspection he found that the horizontal stabilizer the top half of the horizontal stabilizer was missing apparently what happened was a previous solo student decided it would be cool to fly in between two uh radio towers and he didn't see the guide wires to the towers. And he hit one, and it sliced down halfway down the wing before it snapped. And when it snapped, it cut the top half of the horizontal stabilizer off. And he flew it back and landed and walked in and handed in his hobs and his tack times and stuff and just went home and never said anything. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, exactly. I don't even know what to say to that. I mean... First off, he could have killed himself. He could have killed people on the ground. And now this tower is sitting minus one guy wire. Are yes. you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. This actually happened. It happened about, uh, I would say, it was about three or four years ago. And uh, It's got to slow down your flight training. Yes, it will. Oh, he. I don't believe he flew with them anymore after that. <laughs> that yeah. is shocking. Yeah, very shocking. We're we're we were very surprised, and in fact, the, the very surprised that he didn't even mention anything. Like we wouldn't notice, you know. How did you guys figure it out? Well, we knew that the previous pilot had just flown it. So upon uh, you know, from what I know, uh, they went and asked him some questions. If he knew why the wing was just kind of dangling there, <laughs> um, he uh, he fessed up to what happened. Yeah, I don't understand why he would think that nobody would even ask him the question. I mean, that's just crazy. And that's see, that's the kind of guy I don't want to fly with. 
Oh, exactly. Oh, exactly. And, uh, yeah, it's that whole denial of reality, you know, <laughs> ignore it, it'll go away kind of uh, defense mechanism. They kinda, I'm thinking there was probably a piece of the seat missing where he pucker-factored it to death. <laughs> Oh wow. man, I don't even know, but uh, <laughs> that's that's the story I I use a lot to scare students if they need scaring. But um, that yeah, that's the one that always always shocks me too. But you can you can immediately detect something wrong with the airplane just by walking up to it. You know something's wrong, especially if you have a lot of hours in that airplane. I guess other things that you're going to need to worry about with doing your pre-flight too. Once you pre-flight yourself, pre-flight the weather and the flight planning check the aircraft to make sure that it's all maintained and airworthy, then you can start getting into the actual meat of the pre-flight of, of the aircraft. Currently, I'm training in a Cessna 150, and uh, that, that's the first thing we always have to check, the documents. And, and, and I, don't, you know, I don't know all the documents that I'm supposed to be looking for, so I always have to look at the checklist because I, I, haven't, I haven't done it enough times to really know what I'm supposed to be looking for. And even the walk around, I, I still have to watch the checklist and look at, you know, what it is I'm supposed to be actually looking for. But yeah, before we even, we keep ours in a tea hanger. And before I even, before we even pull it out of the tea hanger, I'm, I'm inside looking to make sure all the documents are up to date, the registration. Um, and then there, there was a time when we had a registration issue. I think we were just getting the, uh, changing ownership of the airplane from a, a, a partnership to a corporation. And during that time, we didn't have the registration, and, and the call was made, well, we can wash the plane, we can pull it out and make it look pretty, and we would probably be okay flying it, but we're just not going to do that. An airport near me is Alliance Airport, Kilo Alpha Foxtrot Whiskey. And it's a beautiful airport, and it would just take flying into there one time without a registration because there's an FAA FISDO right there. And sometimes those inspectors, they're just sitting out in their chairs just randomly waiting for an airplane to pull up so they can then ramp check it. And, and, man, it only takes one time. So it's definitely not worth it. Also, uh, for the documents, um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, the AERO acronym. Um, I know a yes. lot of... Yeah, that's a that's a good one to make sure that you have uh, the uh, airworthiness, the registration, the POH, and the weight and balance. Uh, those are those. When I mean documents, that's kind of what I'm really getting at. There is make sure that you have those, and then there's also the you know the radio license if it's international. But those are what you're going to want to make sure that they're current and up to date, and they're all in the correct name for that aircraft. After you get familiar with doing it. Uh, just have your, your method of, of doing your pre-flight around the airplane and then going back over the checklist to see if there's anything that you may have forgotten. Doing my walk around, I've found very small things that have caused the airplane to be grounded before. Uh, uh, again, this one wasn't me. This was another instructor. But uh, the student had come up to the instructor and, and went, isn't there supposed to be a pin in that wheel there? And he walked over and... The way that the Duchess landing gear is configured, there's a piston that fits into the landing gear that kind of helps bring it up, and it's held together with this long pin that keeps it the two connected. And um, that pin was completely missing, and it just so happened that on the previous flight, the pin went missing and the gear was, um, I guess, broken, but the piston had completely separated from the landing gear. And when he dropped the landing gear, it just so happened that that piston came back into the landing gear 
and it perfectly slid in. And the odds of that apparently are one in a million. And so the, the pilot never even knew anything was wrong and landed. So it's amazing that the student didn't even catch that there's just a little pin missing in that landing gear. They would have gone and flew, and that probably that piston, the chances of that piston going back in that landing gear were very nil, and they most likely would have had severe problems. Wow. When we pre-flight the Navajo, I don't know everything about the gear, but I know that there's these very little things that they get down and check. And, and I guess that when you go to something that's that's complex or high performance, and you you know you've got you've got uh, retractable gear, especially all those extra moving parts, I can imagine that that the pre-flight inspection gets exponentially more more advanced. Oh yes, yes it does. And uh, uh, at least it's supposed to. Yeah, it is supposed to. <laughs> And the, and the thing is, is that's not even on the checklist. You mentioned that you fly a Cessna 152. Um, 150. 150. I have a lot of experience in 172s, and I don't know if it's the same way for the 150, but the 172 does not have flaps on the uh, checklist, on the interior. Uh, the, uh, the ones that, are in the, that come published in the POH for the Skyhawk do not have flaps on them. And so you, I'll watch the student do the complete walk around of the aircraft and check all the interior and everything and not once retract the flaps because it's not on the checklist. And I can't really, you know, that, that's important. We need to make sure that those actually work, uh, and that they're not broken. But it's, it's kind of frustrating to find that there are some, what I consider, very important things that need to be checked in the pre-flight that aren't on the checklist. And so keep that in mind. Kind of use common sense with when checking your stuff. It was interesting, before, before I actually started flying this particular airplane, we went through ground school because the, uh, the instructor who was going to be training the, in the airplane also decided he was going to do a ground school for the students um, who were going to potentially fly the thing. And one of the things that we did was build a checklist for that airplane from scratch. And what we did is we looked at a lot of different sources and really built what I would consider a comprehensive checklist because what's in the POH may may have a lot of the stuff and I don't know if it had flaps on it or not but I know that there was a lot of things that we added because we wanted to make sure we hit it for our airplane and we had several versions of different checklists and different kinds of airplanes and and we said look this is what we're going to put on our checklist and we designed it from scratch and built it all the way up and and that's what we use for that airplane that's really fascinating actually uh i want to try that that's pretty cool aircraft specific checklist um or tell number specific checklist that's a good idea i can't believe i've never thought of that yeah and the interesting thing is like i said it we never we didn't take anything off if anything information was added and and put into a method but and we did every checklist. We did you know cruise checklist, descent checklist. Um, I think the only thing we probably didn't do was the emergency procedures because you know that was done. I, I can't remember. I have to look and see now. But it was um, it was an undertaking. It took us a whole evening to do, but but we did it. It was just making sure it was well laid out, made sense, had the values that we needed for our airplane, and and was complete. That's very cool. I've actually done that for a couple of different aircraft I've flown, just um, mainly if there was something a little unusual about that aircraft. Going from a Cessna to a Piper, for instance, there were a lot of little differences, and I found that the checklists that were provided in the POH didn't really give you a lot of detail, and the differences tended to make it a little more complex. 
by doing a custom checklist, I could take those same things, expound on them a little bit, and add a few steps. Uh, I also learned a few things along the way that I tended to forget that I needed to spell out on there. Uh, for instance, setting the transponder back to 1200 after someone finished an IFR flight earlier. Uh, that once you've been reminded a few times, that it's kind of good to have that on the checklist so you don't miss those things. Yeah, definitely. There's find that a lot of uh, other things are, you know, the tow bars and tie downs. I get a lot of those too. I, I don't know if you've ever accidentally left, you know, the tie down on, but uh, uh, I have. It really hurts the performance. I understand. Yes. <laughs> you know what? The one thing I'm worried about more than anything is the chalks. I mean. Because you don't see it, and if you don't kick it out of the way, you know if you're at a if you're if you're at a transient air parking and they've stuck a chalk on the nose wheel and you don't forget you forget to kick it out of the way, and you got that motor running, and uh, you go to taxi out, it ain't gonna work. And oh yeah. You gotta, now you gotta stop the engine. You know, for no for, if for no other reason than it's really embarrassing. They're all re- <laughs> oh they're all really embarrassing. I've I've actually tried to during my commercial. My check ride prep for my commercial, I taxied with the tail tie down still on. Oh, didn't man. get it, and the airplane just kind of jerked to a halt. It was I was really subtle and it just a nice little forward jerk stopped us. But um, yeah, I had to cancel the taxi clearance, had to turn off the airplane, had to get out, had to you know, it's very it's definitely hurts your ego. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Our Beechcraft Duchess, however, is a completely different story. Those airplanes, those twin airplanes are so heavy that it just rips it right off the wing. And you don't even feel it. And uh, those, it's, a, it's a, like a little aluminum hook on the bottom of each wing where the tie-down goes. And um, it'll just snap that little aluminum square off, that little hook off. And uh, the mechanics, oh, they hate that so much. They'll come in and they'll put the bill for the replacement for those little aluminum hooks. And they'll, they'll like, tape the hook onto it, the broken one onto it. And they'll, they'll show everyone, all the instructors around the, the school. Because uh, that little, I think it's like an inch and a half by inch and a half aluminum hook is $1,500. You're kidding. I'm not joking. And the I'm going to go in the business of making hooks for those oh, things. Oh, that's what, the, that's what <laughs> our mechanic said. He said, I'll just charge you $500 for this stuff, <laughs> you know. But it was $1,500 to get a new hook for that Beechcraft Duchess from Beechcraft. Wow. Which you had to do. And, uh, yeah. All so, for forgetting one simple thing exactly. on your walk around. Ex- exactly right. Exactly right. So, I mean, you can wind up costing yourself a lot of money, <laughs> especially if you rent airplanes and you forget to do something like that because uh, you're, you'll, you'll probably wind up being financially responsible for it. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I love Cessnas. I've flown them all my life. But if you if you forget to properly secure or you don't properly secure a fuel cap on a Cessna, uh, you're not going to know about it until you your fuel gauges start showing that they're dropping. And by the way, I think that according to the POH, the only time they have to be accurate is when they're empty and when they're full. So anytime in between, your gauges may not be accurate, and you may be siphoning fuel off the top, uh, and you don't know it. Whereas on a low-wing airplane you can see the top of the wings. And that brings to mind uh, one particular instance when we were flying the Navajo. We were on our, we had just taken off from Melbourne Airport and we were on our way up to Savannah, Georgia. 
And we're climbing up for, I want to say about 7,000 or 9,000 feet. And we're about 5,000 feet. And, and the Navajo that we fly, the pilot and the co-pilot sit up front. Single pilot airplane, of course, but, you know, the two front seats. And then we've got two rear-facing seats directly behind them. And then two more front-facing seats after them. Uh, and I was sitting in the front-facing seat that was the most aft of our airplane. They, they, they different configurations, but our configuration is six seats. And I'm looking out over the wing, and I'm just kind of, you know, getting settled in, bringing up my laptop to do a little bit of work on the way. And something catches my eye. And I look over to the left wing, and I see this. This I understand this airplane. The owner of these airplanes that I fly. I, f- I fly and fly in the Navajo and the Piper. Uh, excuse me, the Navajo and the Cessna 150. They are meticulously clean, perfect airplanes. The guy is absolutely a stickler for the cleanliness of his airplanes and the way they look and the interiors, the instrument panels. I mean, the, he doesn't. It's like spare no expense. Make sure this. If it's got a dent, replace the airplane cap with the type of thing. Okay, so. This wing is white, and I look over, and there's this blue streak. So it stands out like a sore thumb. I mean, it's not like, you know, a DC-3 where, okay, it's supposed to have spots on it. That isn't supposed to be there. And and so I'm watching, and all of a sudden I see this little wisp. And I understand we're doing 170 knots, climbing for 7,000 feet. And I see this wisp, and I see this wisp, and it's only once in a while. And I, before I said anything, I wanted to make sure I knew what I was looking at because I, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to warn the pilot about something and then it not be anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm like, is that venting? Is it? I think it's venting. No, eh, yeah, we're venting fuel. The cap was there. It was still venting fuel. And so I said, guys, I think we're we're venting fuel out of the left wing. And here I am. I'm looking straight ahead, and the two heads turn 90 degrees and stare at this wing and there's a silence and the pilot goes I think we're going to have to do something about that (laughs) that's why he's the captain that's right exactly so we immediately start looking uh, we have an IFR clearance where we immediately start trying to divert and they're like well what's coming up Uh, looks like Daytona so they start deciding to go down of course there's turbochargers and they don't want to super cool the engines and so I suggested we go to St. Augustine which we did the, the the cap was on. It was locked in place. It was oriented correctly. Uh, something up with the rubber seal that it got pinched or something. It was, and we even we even reseated it. And it's when we got in the air, it still vented a short time until we we actually turned to those tanks and began sucking the fuel out of that tank so that it wouldn't vent anymore. And we were okay, but I think we eventually had to replace that rubber seal. But I mean, that's something that you can't even check necessarily. In the pre- I mean, we checked it in pre-flight, but it still ended up being an issue. Yeah, pre-flight, pre-flight doesn't catch everything, you know, but it catches about ninety percent of, of of everything. So that's pretty. That's a pretty good story. I like that. That. Um, <laughs> hey guys, I think we're venting fuel. <laughs> yeah, that one hundred <laughs> low lead. I got in the um, uh, Skyhawk recently, and we we did the pre-flight, and we we started up the engine, and as we were taxiing. We, uh, strong gas smell in the cabin, and, uh, so strong, I said, okay, you know, this, there's something not right here. We shouldn't be getting this strong of a gas smell. 
So we, we taxied back and we pre, uh, what do you say, pre flute? <laughs> we pre flighted the airplane again and, uh, checked the gas, checked the tanks. There's no blue, low lead anywhere. I don't see anything dripping anywhere. But the, the smell was so strong that we took it down to the mechanics hangar and he was looking at it and the whole fuel tank, the fuel tank in the wing, apparently the mechanic was telling me that Cessna makes a pretty horrible fuel tank. But the fuel tank cracked in the wing and was leaking fuel inside the wing. And he kind of grabbed on the tip of the wing and put some weight on it to where it kind of leaned to the right a little bit. And the fuel started pouring out of the strainer at that point uh, underneath the wing. And then there was blue, you know, low lead everywhere. That's not something you can see wrong with the airplane. And uh, I, again, I can just see, you know, a student going solo, going, okay, there's a gas smell, but I checked and everything looks fine. I'm going to go anyway. And then, of course, you know, if you're with an instructor, the instructor always likes to, you know, mess with you too, giving you stuff. Because uh, the best way to make sure you check everything on the checklist is to mess up, to make a mistake on it, to find something that would affect the safety of your flight. And then fix it to let you know how important it is. So, you know, the instructors like to play around with their students too. I don't know if you guys have any experience doing that, but my personal favorite is, uh, the light circuit breakers inside the cabin of the airplane on night flights. The push pull ones, I'll pull them and they'll check the lights and the lights won't come on and they'll, they'll think something's wrong with the airplane and I try to get them to kind of troubleshoot it a little bit and it very, only half of them figure out that the circuit breakers are, have been popped. I don't what know. What do they I try to do? They try to cancel the flight and say we can't fly. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Students, students will will cancel a flight on you if it's you know light and variable outside. So <laughs> I had a flight instructor that really liked to play those games with me. Uh, his favorite was to, to to squirting the stuff under the wheels or under the cowling and then saying, "Ooh, I think you got a leak here." <laughs> well, it's actually the fuel that he just sumped out of the wing. But oh, okay. You've got to okay, check it out. Really out the wing. I was about to say, does he carry around an oil can with him? Or <laughs> I wouldn't put it past him, but I didn't catch him doing it. Oh, man. That's great. And instructors need to be on a guard, too, because students will do things, too. That We had um, an instructor get in a lot of trouble, <laughs> get in a lot of trouble, actually, because he didn't catch that when the student checked the uh, oil uh, on the airplane. What he does is he takes the dipstick completely out you know, wipes it, sticks it in to check. But for some reason this time he took it completely out, wiped it, set it on the footrest on the airplane, and then just closed the cap and continued on with his flight plan. And they went and flew without the dipstick in the oil. The dipstick was just left there on the ground. And they went and flew and, the you know, oil's all down the side of the airplane. It's all spinning out everywhere. They land, the whole side of the airplane's covered in oil. <laughs> and he got in quite a bit of trouble for that. I imagine you did, and it's a good thing you didn't seize the engine. Yeah, exactly right. It, so those Skyhawks, they're great training aircraft. I've seen those airplanes take a, a lot of beating, you know, and of course going back to the whole hitting the guide wire thing and still being able to come back and land. Not that I would ever recommend that, but it's amazing the, the, just the absolute punishment I've seen these airplanes take and still come back. I wonder if that's in the bold-faced emergency procedures, you know, what happens if you hit a guide wire? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you pucker and pray, the two P's. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the two P's, you do your P checklist. <laughs> See, I haven't gotten into the, the CFI, um, you know, testing me on pre-flight yet. 
and in fact, I'm surprised. I was surprised. I went on a lesson, you know, one of my second or third lessons. He's like, go ahead and do pre-flight. I, I said, you want to go ahead and start on pre-flight? And he's like, go for it. I'm thinking, go for it? What, me? You, you want me, the student pilot who doesn't know how to spell pre-flight, you want me to pre-flight the airplane that we're going to go <laughs> flying in in a few minutes? And he's like, yes. So, you know, I did it, and I'm, I don't know, I, and I'm thinking, okay, he's going to come behind me and check my work. And that didn't happen. I, I'm guessing, well, okay, maybe he knows this airplane inside now, and he already did the pre-flight, or he knows, he knows the things that would need to be checked. I, you know, I don't know, but I checked everything to my best of ability. But, you know, I, I, I'll tell you that I don't feel comfortable with my skills yet. Because, you know, when, when it says check the flaps, okay. What does that mean? Well, you got to check the rollers. You got to make sure that the um, that there's there's grease. You got to make sure there's no cracks. That none of that's in the checklist. When you check the um, the the I don't know what that is. The little drive piston. It's got to have a little bit of play, but not too much, you know. And when you check the rudder, there's supposed to be you know the 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 bolts, the pivot bolts are supposed to be in there. Oh, and by the way, there's supposed to be safety wire in there too. And is it is it in there correctly? So none of that's in there. The, the, it says check the empennage. Okay, I can check the empennage. It's there. That's my <laughs> level of experience. You know? <laughs> so um, <laughs> that, that is, and it, it, it's. Yeah. I can see what he's doing. He's doing something both positive and kind of negative at the same time. Um, it's the instructor's responsibility to build your confidence and to kind of transfer over that piloting command mentality to the student. So where you will do this on your own. Um, which that, that's just saying, you know, here we go. Go ahead and pre-flight. Let's see how you do. That's a great way to, to transfer that. But also at the same time, now it sounds like you have a pretty intimate knowledge about what needs to be there on the pre-flight anyway. But, you know, it needs to show you, okay, on the flaps, this is what is most likely to break. This is where we have the most problems. This is what you need to look for. And um, having your instructor telling you stuff like that, the empennage, okay, well, we need to make sure that the baggage you know, compartment door is is closed and locked. That the rivets, there's there's no rivets missing. There's no large dents in the aircraft. And then coming around and we're VFR. Do we really need the static wicks or you know just this whole thing? Okay, the brakes. What are we looking for in the brakes? Okay, there's no hydraulic fluid leaking. But what else? What about the thickness of the brake pads? How thick do the brake pads need to be? The instructor really needs to. It's his responsibility to make sure the student knows what they're looking for so the transfer of that PIC mentality goes a lot smoother into the student. With and all of that happened, you know, he went through this all with me, but then he turned me loose quicker than I thought I was comfortable with it. Now, I, I also know that he would not have turned me loose if he didn't think I was going to do okay, and I'm sure, like I said, that he checked my work as well, but... I, you know, I just don't have that level of confidence built up yet where I say, you know what, I don't need you to check behind me because I know that this airplane is safe to fly as much as it can be before we actually go in the air and try it. I don't have that level of confidence in my not missing something yet. You have a checklist so you don't forget, and the checklist can sometimes not be very specific, but it is definitely a good place to start and end is the checklist and uh your your confidence will get up there you'll do it a few hundred times and you'll get really quicker at it and you know that that first that first private student you always take out to the airplane it always takes them you know 
you know, 30, 45 minutes to do a pre-flight. <laughs> and then by the time, <laughs> by the time you're in the commercial, you know, they, they have the, the airplane all ready to go before you can even get in it. So, and then, and of course, then I, I even trust them when they even do it that fast because I, I see them looking at the checklist. I know that they know that they know <laughs> what stuff to check and, um, I see them hit every target and, uh, yeah, I'm at the point where that's, that's when you sign them off for a check ride when you go, Okay, would I trust, you know, my kids flying with this person? And then when the answer is finally yes, you know, you sign them off with a check light. Or, you know, mostly yes. When the, <laughs> the answer is, when the answer is not absolutely not, <laughs> then you sign them off for a check ride. Uh, what should a second flight, pre-flight be? Ah, uh, second pre-flight. Okay, well, yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So, um, Second pre-flight is, uh, you know, you pre-flight the airplane, everything looks good. You go and fly to your destination. You may have lunch. You have yourself your $100 hamburger. Now you're ready to come back. What should a second pre-flight be like? And um, there's kind of a, a short and a long answer to this. Uh, the short answer is exactly like the first pre-flight, <laughs> period. Um, the checklist does not change. There's not a second pre-flight checklist. It's just pre-flight checklist. And um, it should it should not change at all. Now you might have to add some different things to it. Now you went day VFR. Now you're going night VFR, or now you're going back IFR. Things can change where you may need to inspect different things. Okay, now we're going to need to check the pitot heat because we may be in the clouds, or we may need those static wicks now because we may go in the clouds. Or do the lights work? You know, we have. Um, you know, there's different requirements for day and night VFR for your aircraft to be certified. And hopefully, if you foresaw that you were going to be coming back at night, maybe you did your night pre-flight before you even went to your destination. But uh, the short answer, really, for the safety of flight and to make sure that there's no doubt, it just needs to be exactly the same as the first one. I mean, is it important to... Let, let's say you, you've you sumped the fuel tanks and you found no water in in the fuel at all and you've been in severe clear and there's absolutely no chance that you've gone through any kind of water and the humidity is down to 30%. <laughs> do you sump the tanks again? Well, common, common sense would dictate no, but for some reason we, sump, we, we got a top off, uh, sumped the fuel, the fuel was fine, no water, went and flew. It was a day just like you're describing. We didn't sump the fuel again because we didn't get new fuel. Obviously, if you purchase new fuel at your other destination, check it. Make sure that it's 100 low lead. Make sure the person didn't accidentally put Jet A in it. Um, make sure that there wasn't water in whatever he put in it. But if you didn't buy fuel and you feel common sense dictates it like this, uh, we, I was in a scenario like this, and we went and we went back out flying out our second destination back to our primary airport. And along the way, we were having rough engine problems. We very rough engine problems. The engine didn't die, but we found that the engine would work fine if we changed the fuel selector to the left tank, as to opposed to both or the right tank. And when we got back, we discovered that someone had dropped their pin into the fuel tank. And during the flight, I guess on the landing or something, it broke. And all these, like, this, like, spring 
and um, the ink and uh, just all the little bits of this pen broke off and fell into the into the fuel and wow. got into. There was still enough fuel for it to get a burn, but it was a really bad burn and it was causing some severe engine roughness. I heard another story. You know, I want to say I heard this on a podcast, but I don't know which podcast I heard this on. But they were talking about straining the fuel for water, but not but the water being kind of milky or cloudy, and they and them not recognizing it that it was water in the fuel tank because it wasn't um, collecting at the bottom of the sump. I don't know. Have any of you heard of that? I've heard of situations where either there was. Enough water that the entire sump was water, and it, so it looked clear and didn't have any separation. Um, if it were cloudy, I think it'd be that the the water was suspended, or maybe that's more likely alcohol or something like that that would be suspended in the fuel versus settling. Or it could be just a, a fresh fill-up. Uh, I have heard that you need to wait about 15 minutes after a top-off before you sump to give the water time to drain down to the bottom. You know, that's a good rule. I like that. I haven't heard of that. My dad and I used to, well, my dad used to rent a Cessna 177 Cardinal RG, gorgeous airplane, 2-0 Alpha X-ray, never, never forget that thing. One of its little um, qualities was it, it had leaky seals on the gas, uh, gas caps, and the plane for, for a long time was kept outside. Uh, before before they finally got it into a tea hanger, but but while it was kept outside, so it was it was a given that you would sump the tanks until you found fuel, because water would you know collect rain especially, and here in Florida we have lots of it, so it would rain and the water would go into the fuel, and you would sump and sump and sump and sump and sump until you got fuel. And then you'd sump a little bit more and made sure you got nothing but fuel, and then you could fly. Uh, it was just one of those – I think they eventually – one of the things they did was put it inside uh, a tea hanger, but I think they probably eventually got those those seals replaced. Either that or put spigots on the bottom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. It worked. But it was, you know, like you said, it, if some, if I had gone up there sight unseen and not known about that quality of this airplane, I, you, you, do you, can you, is the blue, the the blue dye that they put in the hundred low lead enough to know that you're looking through blue if you if you look at nothing but it i mean if you're just looking at water would you know that that's just water yeah i think that comes yeah. from experience but you know I, I i the blue the blue dye is definitely sufficient to know if you have a hundred low lead or not and the green dye and uh, the only thing would be uh, looking at it you just have to smell it but it'd be okay is this water or is this jet a because jet a is actually kind of clear so uh, but the blue dye is definitely dark enough to where you know it's 100 low lead and even sometimes you know depending on what what you're sumping the fuel into that may kind of uh, lighten the color so uh, you know the trick is to just if if there's any white on your airplane or your white checklist if your checklist is white just hold it up to something that has a white background and you can easily see the blue and uh, that can alleviate your, your problems there that's a good technique David you're in Florida correct? Yes. The airports down there, Florida, does Florida have a state law about having to, when you sump the fuel, you have to put the fuel back in the airplane? There is a law. I don't know if it's a state law. I thought it was an FAA law, but I guess, yeah, it must be, it must be a state law then. And 
we never did. In fact, and it's I guess it's a fairly recent thing, probably in the last you know ten years or whatever. But before the ramp that we kept the planes on that I usually flew when I was a kid that wasn't the best quality ramp and so there was always cracks in it and grass kind of growing up through the bottom of the ramp and so we would use it to kill the weeds basically <laughs> it worked great you know but i guess the, i guess the uh the environmentalists decided that that was probably not a good idea and they're probably right so um you know when you're when you're something a a lowing airplane and you're having to put the fuel back into the um into the wings, it's not that big of a deal. But when you're trying to balance a full cup of fuel while you're s- sticking your foot up next to the cowling and then onto the wing strut on a Cessna 172 or something, it's not exactly easy. Do it's, I do it? Yes, but it's it's kind of a pain, frankly. It is kind of a pain. We've had some instructors come from Florida tell us that they couldn't believe it when we would just sump fuel and then toss it on the ramp. And uh, I had never heard of that, where it was actually a law. You couldn't do that, which you know I can kind of I kind of see it now, <laughs> you know after the, it kind of makes sense now why that would be a law. But um, yeah, our Duchess uh, doing the the multi-engine pre-flight on the Duchess, these sumps there are two sumps under the wing, kind of near the uh, wheel well, and the uh, when I say that it's like a fire hose when you're sumping those, fuel just sprays out of that at very <laughs> high PSI and goes absolutely everywhere. And you, and you watch the student with that small little plastic cup, <laughs> like a little needle in the middle, and they go up there and they stick it in there, and then the whole hand and the floor and their clothes are all of a sudden just covered in gas because they're not expecting it. And, uh, yeah, there's no way you're going to catch all that gas. <laughs> I can't imagine doing the, trying to obey that law in Florida with that airplane. Five-gallon bucket. Yeah, exactly right. You gotta, it's gotta have a bucket. The one, the one main reason I don't mind so much to have to put the fuel back into the, personally anyway, I don't mind to have to put the fuel back into the the tank is because the worst thing that happens is now I have to go look at the the caps again and visually verify the fuel level. So, you know, I mean, it's it's something you got to do anyway. Right. Why not? Just kill two birds with one stone. I'm climbing up on top of the wing. The only thing I have to do now, additionally, is balance this little cup in one hand while I'm pulling myself up on the airplane. But it's still, it's just another excuse to go up there, recheck your caps because you can't see them in flight on the on the 150. You know, you just they're right. up above you. So you know, check your caps again and make sure visually verify the fuel level that it is where you want it and it meets with your weight and balance. You know, you don't want to. You know, be carrying too much weight and fuel and and cargo and passengers. So you know, oh, it's only supposed to be to the tabs. Is that where you filled it? Now you go back there and climb and check and verify. Oh yeah, it's only to the tabs, so we can fly today. You know, it's just another excuse to get up there and and check check your stuff before you go. Which is a good reminder. Uh, wonder how much money we actually save by putting the fuel back in the fuel tank without just tossing it on the ground. I wonder how much, after continually doing that, how much money in the long run, you know, could have been saved by just putting it back in the, the airplane. In the long run, it's probably a lot, but it has to be in the very long run, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that, that little ounce of fuel isn't going to do much. But Well, but if you think about how many ounces of fuel get dumped on the tarmac every day, it, it probably adds up quite a bit there, both for the environment and for the cost of fuel. 
Oh, yeah. Well, you know, our flight school flew, those airplanes are flying just shy of 24 hours a day for three-hour flight blocks each. And we have, I think when I I last checked, they had 15 airplanes in the fleet that were flying for that long. And each one, just that fuel just goes right on the ground. And I can't even imagine how much fuel, you know, could be saving for doing that. But, you know, price you pay for convenience, I guess. Well, Dave, we want to thank you for being with us. Uh, we've really enjoyed it, and I uh, hope you've enjoyed it as well. I really have. I, I, I'm kind of uh, humbled that you guys would even want to have me on, but thanks a lot. It's been a great time, and uh, I, I hope I hope some people can find some valuable information from this. And, and I, I say this on my own podcast, uh, and I will say it here. I am not a pilot, and I don't pretend to be one. I'm an aviation enthusiast and an occasional student who eventually hopes to get a license one day. But, you know, anything I say <laughs> should be taken with a heavy disclaimer. Um, but, you know, it's it's good that I can bounce some of this stuff off of off of a real CFI. And um, I just want to thanks thanks for having me on. I've had a great time. Well, we'll do what we can to make sure that you turn into a, a complete pilot. All right. <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I hope you uh, continue to listen to this podcast then, and uh, uh, while you, while you continue with your training, I hope it helps you with your training. I have subscribed, and you will be a regular um, a regular subscription on my iPod, and I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna mention you guys on our podcast as well, which is the the pilot's flight pod log. I think you already mentioned that. Um, Will and I have a great time doing that, having uh, just people come into the to the virtual hangar and just talk about flying. So I like the structure of this podcast. This is very cool, and um, uh, ours is much more kind of fly by the fly by the seat of your pants. And uh, uh, it was it was a hard time finding good aviation podcasts for a while, and there's a really great collection of them out there now. So uh, you guys are definitely on my list. How can people find your podcast and subscribe to it? Uh, it's at pilotwill.libsyn.com or you can just search for it in iTunes or any other podcatcher. Um, iTunes is where uh, probably the easiest place to find it. Uh, Will Hawkins actually started this and he did a student pilot flight pod log to chronicle his flight training and then after he got his private he couldn't be a, you know do the student pilot flight pod log anymore so he made the pilot's flight pod log and I co-host it with him. Um, so you can find us right there on iTunes, and uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I know both of you guys are on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter under Dave Flies, D-A-V-E-F-L-Y-S. Well, great, and we'll see if we can't get the uh, the student pilot flight pod log reenacted for uh, for when you start your your training in earnest again. I have actually thought that very same thing. So <laughs> I'll talk to Will about it. <laughs> That'd be great. I would sign up for that. Well, thanks again, Dave, and uh, we'll we'll tweet with you soon. You guys uh, have clear skies. You too. Take care. All right, students, this podcast topic is about pre-flight, and I hope you understand the importance of a proper pre-flight now. Pre-flight in an aircraft is not going to 100% guarantee a safe flight. However, statistics show that most aviation accidents can be prevented due to a, a great pre-flight. Now, I've already mentioned my three steps to a good pre-flight. Though, I have simplified what the FAA has already said. I suggest you look up Advisory Circular 6184 Bravo, titled, Role of a Pre-Flight Preparation. 
the FAA goes on to list up to 13 elements to a pre-flight as opposed to my three. And these include your charts, route, aim, AFD, notums, weather, flight plan, weight and balance, ice, density altitude, effective wind, runway condition, cold weather flying. Notice, however, that they left out you, the pilot. This is where I like my three steps. If the weather is bad and you still go fly and there was a crash due to bad weather, was it the pilot's bad judgment or was it the weather? Again, we have all heard the majority of aircraft accidents are due to pilot error. So in reality, what causes crashes? It just isn't the pilot. It's all three steps combined. Never ignore one. Fly safe. Thank you for listening to the Pilot's Journey podcast. We'd love to hear your questions, suggestions, or experiences. And you can reach us at our website, www.pilotsjourneypodcast.com. Or you can leave us voicemail at 469-277-2359. You can also follow me as Pilot Stu, that's S-T-U, on Twitter or MyTransponder.com. You can reach me on Twitter and MyTransponder.com as well at Pilot Stu, that's S-T-E-W. And until next time, go fly and enjoy the journey. Please note that this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own qualified flight instructor before attempting anything discussed in this podcast. Copyright 2009, Fully Stewed Productions.